Well, good morning. I want to read something to you real quick. Um, I feel like it's been a weary week for our state and for our nation, um, everything that we're seeing, everything that we're hearing, and uh, I think there's frustration that's mounting in the hearts of a lot of people. And uh, I, don't want to, I don't want to give a spotlight to COVID more than it already has because I think it's, uh, uh, it's evil and I uh, can't wait for it to be over. But I read this this morning, and this helped put things in perspective for me and our online community. I hope you guys hear this as well, wherever you are. Uh, a guy wrote this. He said, the virus is blowing up all over our country. We're weary for friends who have it. We're weary for friends who are fighting it. We're weary of masks and we're weary of distancing. We're weary on so many levels. So today, I need to come and worship him, Jesus, the one who said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Man, that gives me hope. So I hope that encourages you this morning as we approach God's word on a significantly lighter tone. I want to say thank you to those of you who pray for me. I know many of you pray for me and my family often. This Thursday, we got keys to our new house, which is exciting. And so we're in process of cleaning and painting and moving. But in the midst of all of that, if you don't know this about me, I don't always make the greatest decisions uh, when it comes to my life personally in the sense of we left our house Friday evening, had been cleaning for almost 10 hours straight got home. It was about 10, 10 30 at night. I was tired. I was, just wanted to take a shower, just wanted to go to bed and uh, realized that I had left my garage door opener at the mechanic and the mechanic was now closed. Uh, I don't have a key to my house. And you're going to say, why don't you have a key to your house? I don't know. I just don't. All right. So this is my, the house I rent. I just don't have a key. And so I didn't have anywhere to get in my house. So I went to the garage door opener. And just because this is how things work in my life, um, the garage door opener no longer worked. I tried it 50 times over a period of 15 minutes, and you think I'm exaggerating? I'm not. You can ask my wife to the point where I literally sat in front of my garage door and just put my head in my hands, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's because I have my wife and my 8-year-old and my 3-year-old in the car. So I walked over to the garage door, and I was like, I'm just going to Hulk smash the garage door. Well, <laughs> y'all, I'm telling you, you need to pray for your pastor. My garage door has one of those T-bar locks where if you turn the handle, these two bars act like they engage, which means the garage door is no longer able to function. And so I went over there and with every single ounce of strength I had, I pulled up on that garage door. I mean, I was, I was like, I'm just going to break it. I don't even care. I pulled up on that thing and I pulled and pulled and pulled. And then I just let all my weight depress down on it and went... <laughs> And the garage door was now officially locked. And I had no way to get into my house. So I drove my wife and my two daughters down to my mom and dad's house. They live down in Pickerington. And uh, because my pride was welling up in my soul, I spent the next two hours starting at 1 a.m. at my house uh, with screwdrivers. I have at my, if you come to my house right now, there's no screens on any of my windows because I removed them all trying to get in. So imagine me at like 2 in the morning in a black hoodie in the middle of a neighborhood trying to break into my house. The T-bar actual like locks on my house are now completely disassembled from the exterior, which in case you all were wondering, they're very secure. I tried to take them off and they don't come off. Um, I tried everything. I actually took a screwdriver, put it in the deadbolt and I just started just hammering. I was just so mad. So I ended up sleeping on the floor at my new house because my pride wouldn't let me go to my parents. And uh, just so you all know, I found the cheapest locksmith in all of Columbus. Um, he came to my house and he broke in in under 60 seconds. So that's comforting as well. So welcome to my life. It was so, it was so I don't we're going to talk about Jesus, I promise. But I mean, literally, he had these two little metal pins and he walks up and he's like, so how's your day besides this? And we're just engaged. He didn't even look at the lock. He's just talking to me. And he's 
there you go. I said, dude, you just broke into my house and made $95 in two minutes. What's going on? I said, I don't know. So anyways, Philippians chapter 2. Yeah, you think you're the only one with bad weeks. That was just Friday. We could talk about several other things. Philippians chapter 2. We're continuing what we call uh, Joyful. It's a series we started back in April where we've been slowly walking through the book of Philippians and we've taken breaks in between uh, where we've done a series called uh, You Asked For It, Asking for a Friend. We did our uh, Halloween series called Ghost Stories. And so we've been breaking this up and hopefully by the end of 2021, we'll have journeyed all the way through Philippians, every single verse and just a, a kind of a cool journey for our church. So today we're continuing that journey with a message we're calling Selfless and Sacrificial. And so if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's word, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 19 through 30. God's word says this, it's Paul writing, he says, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character, that's Timothy's, because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Verse 26, since he has been longing for all of you and he was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him to you so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and hold people like him in, in honor, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for your word for this day, for the gathering of the local body, Lord, whether here in person or online. Father, we're so thankful for the freedom we have to do this. Jesus, go before us, teach us. Would your spirit dwell among us and in us in this place today so that, Father, we can grow closer to you. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, Lord, and may we live this out with our hands and feet everywhere you send us the rest of the week. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this week I was thinking of this phrase or this idea, which I'm sure many of you have heard this before, that someday your entire life is going to be summed up within a single dash. That someday when your time comes and your life comes to an end, your body will be laid to rest somewhere in the ground and etched in a piece of rock right where your body lays will be the year that you were born it will be the year that you've passed and all of the in-between, everything you've done, everything you've accomplished, everywhere you went, every person you impacted, your entire life is summed up in that single dash between those two dates. And a question I've been thinking about this week is what will people remember about you when they see that dash? When your life expires and you're no longer here, when people think about you, what will they say? What words will they use to describe you? This week I was just kind of being reflective and a little bit nostalgic thinking about uh, some of the most important people in my life that have passed away over the past 20 years, people that impacted me 
greatly. And here's a, a few of them. I thought about my grandpa, Vince, passed away about 20 years ago or so. And when I was reflecting on my grandpa's life, the word that kept coming to mind for me was the word generosity. Every time we would go visit my grandpa in southern Indiana, I have fond memories of him as we would go up to a counter to pay for a meal at a restaurant. He would argue with my mom for a couple minutes about who was going to pay. And then as my grandpa would pay for the meal, he would always reach over and grab an extra $20 bill and slip it to me as a young kid. I loved that. If one of you wants to take up that mantle and continue his legacy, feel free to do so. I would appreciate that. I thought about my grandma, Elsie, and she passed when I was much younger. But one thing or two things I remember about my grandma were double mint gum and pumpkin pie. And I remember visiting my grandma in, again, southern Indiana, and you could walk in the front door of the home where she lived, and from the front door to her little recliner chair, the smell of double mint gum always filled the room because she chewed it all the time. Every holiday, Christmas and Thanksgiving, when we would go and visit them, you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Grandma was going to make a pumpkin pie. And to this day, nobody's ever duplicated the recipe. I remember my other grandmother this week. Her, her name was Iva. She passed away about three or four years ago. And the, when I was thinking about her, the word that kept coming to mind was the word consistency. My grandma, as far as I'm aware, lived in the uh, very same home her entire adult life. I don't think, because I don't recall this happening, I don't think she ever changed the decor of her home. From the time that I was this big to this big, it always looked the same. When you walked in, there was always the Chicago Cubs playing on the television, and she always had two things in her kitchen. She would have made-right sandwiches. If you don't know what those are, they're like Sloppy Joes, but better. All right. And then she would always have sugar cookies with the little Hershey Kiss on top. And probably like your grandma, if you opened my grandma's refrigerator, nothing was stored in Tupperware. What did we store them in if you went to grandma's house? Old butter containers. So you were never sure if you opened the butter container, you're like, I don't know if I should eat this kind of a thing. But grandma would always lay it out because she was a consistent woman. And then the last lady that I thought of this week, just a little nostalgic, was my great aunt, Virginia. She was a very small, frail, fragile lady. But I tell you, she had sass beyond what you could believe. But the thing I remember most about her was the depth of her love for Jesus and how consistently and how often she prayed for those in her family that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior. And so as I thought of those people, I continued to ask myself the question, when I'm gone and people reflect on my life, what will they say about me? I want us to chew on that question today. Here in Philippians chapter 2, we'll start here in verse 19 in just a second. We probably were reading those a moment ago and you thought to yourself, there's nothing really special about these verses. If you read verses 19 through 30, you're not going to find any kind of crazy um, theology. There's nothing theologically profound in this section of the letter to the Philippian church. There's not really any kind of doctrine in here that we need to pause on and really digest and take apart. Instead, what Paul does in this section of 11 verses is Paul is commending two men that were connected to himself in the church of Philippi. Paul spends a few verses commending a man named Timothy, which we'll look at in just a second, but then another guy that you may have never heard of before, but this guy named Epaphroditus. And what I want us to do is just as we're reading through the legacy of these two men, these are recorded in not only a history book, but in the word of God, this legacy that these two guys left on the earth. Ask yourself that question. What will they say about me? 
And so two, two points this morning, if you're a note taker. The first one is this. We see the selflessness of Timothy. The selflessness of Timothy. Look at verse 19 one more time. Paul writes this. He says, Now, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. Let me catch us up real quick. It's been a little bit since we've been in Philippians. So Paul is penning this letter from a Roman jail situation. If you remember back in April, we talked about how Paul was under Roman house arrest. He was constantly guarded by these Roman soldiers. And it's from this situation, call it prison house arrest, it was kind of a combination of these two things, that, that Paul pens letters to multiple churches, the final one being the church in Philippi. And what's interesting is we saw in chapter 1 that Paul had this very unique love for the church at Philippi. To the point where he talks about in chapter 1, he's like, you guys bring me great joy every time I remember you. Every time I pray for you, I have joy. This congregation on multiple occasions had sent Paul monetary gifts to wherever he was doing ministry to make sure that his needs were taken care of. We see over and over, really in chapter 1, this like special bond and this special unity that Paul shared with the church in Philippi. But we also know because of the situation he was in under house arrest that for Paul to actually visit this church was not going to happen. Paul had spent two years here in Rome awaiting this verdict, this trial from Nero. And so as much as he desired, we see in chapter 1, to go to Philippi, it just wasn't in the cards for him at the time. So what does he do instead? Well, he shows us that he's going to send Timothy. So the question it kind of begs itself is, who was Timothy? You may be familiar with his name. Maybe you've read a couple of the letters in the New Testament that were written to him. But who was Timothy? It's important for us to understand this section of Scripture. Paul, we know, had led Timothy to faith in Jesus earlier in Acts chapter 16. And from that point in time, after Timothy had become a believer, he had become one of Paul's closest associates. Uh, it's pretty cool. You read about Timothy that Timothy had not only been sent to Philippi, but also 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says that Timothy was sent to Corinth on behalf of Paul one time to correct them. It's kind of this weird uh, uh, conundrum there because Timothy was sent to Philippi to encourage, but he was sent to Corinth to correct. And so you wouldn't want to be Timothy in that situation. But then you see after a period of trial, after a period of being sent out by Paul and he was being refined as a leader, that ultimately, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Timothy was set up as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul often calls him throughout the New Testament his son in the faith because he trusted him so much. He had led him to Jesus. He had discipled him. Now Timothy was growing up and Paul was going to now send him to Philippi. Yet Timothy, Paul says, is unique compared to some other people that Paul had invested in. Look at verses 20 and 21. Paul says, for I have no one else. That's a pretty strong statement. I have no one else who is like-minded, who will genuinely care about your interests. No, all others, they seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Think about this with me for a second. Paul had a lot of associates. Paul had a lot of people he had discipled. Paul had a lot of leaders that worked with him that he then deployed into ministry and mission efforts. In fact, we don't even know when Paul is penning this letter to the church in Philippi, who would have been with him at this time. I would assume, based on chapter 1, there were other people that Paul was working with, discipling, and he was going to deploy to other places. But Paul says, of all the people that are in my company that I could send to Philippi, Timothy's unique. And here's why. 
He says, because he's like-minded with me. That Timothy was like-minded with me. That's actually a word, a very literal translation would say that Timothy was like-souled with me. That means that there was an interconnectedness that was shared between Timothy and Paul that was very special. The bond that they had was something that you couldn't duplicate. It was something you just had to witness. One writer that I read this week said, they were so close and so connected that you couldn't really tell where Paul ended and Timothy started when they worked together. Because they shared such a like-mindedness. Friends, that's so significant. But not only that, look at what else he says in verse 21. Not only that, Paul says that Timothy is genuinely selfless. Of all my associates, Paul says, Timothy is the only one that's genuinely selfless, meaning he had no desires of his own. Instead, Timothy was simply overflowing with the love that Paul had for the church of Philippi. Timothy shared that exact same love. If you look at the first 11 verses of chapter, uh, chapter 1, you see how the depth of love that Paul possessed for the church in Philippi. To actually in chapter 1, verse 8, you're going to see where Paul tells them, he says, I actually ache to be with you. He wanted to be in the company of the Philippian church so bad that he says, I, I ache to be with you. And Paul says, but if I can't come, I'm going to send Timothy because he shares the same mind as I do. Our souls are connected. And the way I feel about that church, the way I feel about the church in Philippi, Timothy shares that with me. Let's pause there for just a moment because I think we can learn a lot from this little section. When we were in Philippians previous, we talked a lot about humility, right? And we said humility uh, is really bred from self selflessness. That if I truly want to be a humble person, I have to ascribe value to you. I have to believe that, that you are worth something and I have to ascribe that to you and I have to be selfless and put your needs, wants, and desires above my own. Let's echo this again. Selflessness is a lost virtue in this country. We are one of the most no, I don't. We are one of the most selfish, selfish nations on planet Earth. The Church of Jesus oh, goodness, Pastor Joe, get your email ready. The Church of Jesus Christ right now is one of the most selfish organizations on the planet if we're not careful. Friends, we see in Timothy what selflessness looks like, where he says. I just, I, Paul ached to be with them. And then Timothy is followed up when he says, and Timothy shares that. He, he wants to be with you so bad. He aches to be in your company. Why? Because if he shares the same motive that Paul did, he wanted to come and encourage these people. He wanted to bring joy to them by his presence. He wanted to be in community with them. And selfishness is bred from this reality of when we say, I'm going to love Jesus as a follower of Christ. I'm going to love him well by loving other people well, ascribing value, taking my desires and my needs and my wants and setting them aside and replacing them with the needs, wants, and desires of somebody else. I know I sound like a broken record, and we talked about humility so much these past several months, but it's a reoccurring theme that I think we need to be reminded of as Christ followers, that we are called to be humble servants of Jesus. And I, I'm telling you, you say, Aaron, you just called us selfish. I'm, look, fingers pointing this way first. Ask my wife. I, I'm the king of the selfish people. But the word of God reminds me that I have to place my own desires on the back burner for the benefit of other people. And Paul says, Timothy will do that. Look at verse 22. 
Paul says, but you know Timothy's proven character because he has served with me, uh, with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. I can imagine Timothy as he's getting ready, or as Paul as he's writing down this sentence. He, he knows he's going to send Timothy to Philippi. The Philippians were probably expecting Paul to come to them at some point. He founded the church, Acts chapter 20. They knew he was going to come back someday. And so while they're waiting for, Timothy, or for Paul to show up, instead they get the kid. You imagine you're, you're, you're waiting for like the varsity team and all of a sudden the JV team comes out and you're like, are you kidding me? We didn't want you, Timothy. We wanted Paul. And I think, I think Paul's anticipating that from this church. But notice what he does. He, he points the church back to Timothy's faithful service. He says, look at what Timothy has done up to this point. When this church was founded, Acts 16, Timothy was there. I can imagine when that church was, was founded that maybe they've got these new believers that they've just gathered up. And this is Aaron's interpretation of what we see in Acts chapter 16. So this is not in the Bible, but I think it's helpful. I imagine that, that man, maybe they've gathered up some of these new believers and they're going to have their very first Bible study, scroll study. Bible didn't exist yet. So they're going to bust out a scroll, Isaiah, and they're going to have a scroll study. And they're gathered around in this circle. And I can imagine Timothy in Acts chapter 16 sitting down in a chair right next to Paul with a notebook open and a pen in hand, writing down every word that Paul said. And the Philippian church seeing it. Can you imagine? I can imagine in Acts chapter 16, as they're getting ready to set up for that, that Bible, or the scroll study, I can't say Bible study, scroll study, that, that as people are gathering in their mingling, that Timothy was off over to the side, setting up the chairs for everybody that was going to come and sit down to hear Paul teach from the word of God. I can imagine Timothy, after those Bible studies were over in Philippi in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 16, I can imagine as everybody mingled off to fellowship that you would look back into where they had the Bible study and there was Timothy picking up the trash and picking up all the leftovers from everything people had left behind. You see, Paul says, we, we see Timothy's faithful service. You've seen that he has led through so many things. You've seen how he served this church. You've seen the genuineness of of Timothy. You see, Timothy maintained this posture of selflessness and the attitude of a servant. Why? Because he walked in humility and he wanted to serve other people. It wasn't about Timothy, it was about the church at Philippi. We'd tell our interns here at Living Hope, we got two more that we're going to introduce to you next week, which is super exciting. But we've told them over these past several weeks that a title doesn't make you a leader, titles do not make you leaders. We told them this past Wednesday, just because we're going to give you the title of intern, it does not make you a leader in any capacity. Leadership is proven through sacrifice. If you want to lead people, you have to sacrifice for them. And so we reminded them, if you want this church to see you as a leader in this congregation, and you want people to ultimately follow you, then prove yourself to them. Show them that you're actually worth following. Clean up trash when everybody else is gone. Show up in the evening while everybody is at home and they're spending time with their family or having dinner. Show up in the evening and clean the church when nobody's even going to recognize it. Hold a door on a Sunday morning so somebody doesn't have to do it for themselves. Clean a toilet. If you want people to follow you, you have to sacrifice first. If you live selflessly, you give the opportunity for people to follow you, but you have to earn those things. 
And we see that in the life of Timothy. Paul says, you've seen his faithful service. You've seen, he's been tried through these things. You've watched him. And so when he shows up to minister to your church in Philippi, remember back to what he's already done and allow that to be the platform for now that he's coming to influence you. Look at verse 23 and 24. Paul says, as a result of who Timothy was, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. So Timothy wasn't being sent yet. Paul says, once I get answers to my trial, once Nero delivers my sentence, I'll send Timothy to you. Not just so I can get an encouraging word back, but so that I can get some answers to you regarding my faith. The selflessness of Timothy. Now turn the page. Here's our second character, and we'll begin to to close down. The second character is a man named Epaphroditus. Who is Epaphroditus? Point number two is this, the sacrifice of Epaphroditus. Look at verse 25. Paul Paul writes, But I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. He's my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. It's interesting, unlike Timothy, who we see multiple places in the New Testament, Epaphroditus is only mentioned here in Philippians 2. Six verses are all we know about this guy. Paul never talks about him again. Nobody else in the New Testament ever mentions him. But in six verses, you see a giant of the faith right here. Most Bible teachers, if you were to do some research on his name, you would find out that Epaphroditus is a very common name. Really? Like in our culture, a common name is Bob. In the Greek-Roman culture, it was Epaphroditus. So it's kind of a, a different scope here. But his name is actually, I thought this was cool, it's a version of the name Aphrodite. You've probably heard the name Aphrodite if you've ever seen the movie Hercules, any of them, specifically the cartoon. But Aphrodite was the goddess of love. She's goddess of love. And in the uh, Roman culture, her name was Venus. And so she was the goddess of love. So Epaphroditus, he was actually named after this Roman goddess, this Greek goddess, which leads us to believe that Epaphroditus did not come from a Christian background. He actually probably came from a very pagan background that had deep roots in some sort of pagan mythology. Again, in our culture, if you grew up in a Christian family, most likely somebody when you have a newborn baby and people are like, so what did you name him? Buddha, right? You're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. Most time, Christian families, especially this day and age, like you got, what you, what'd you name your baby? Judah, right? Or Israel, or Jesus, or I don't know. Some people do that. It's kind of crazy, right? We, we, we tend to name our children based on the roots that we have. I've told you before, my name is Aaron. If you didn't know that, hello. Where does my name mean? Mountain. And I'm standing on that still. I love that so much. But Epaphroditus, likely, he came to faith later in life, Probably or perhaps through the ministry of Paul sometime after Acts chapter 16. And then what we see here is he was tasked by the Philippian church to go to Rome on their behalf to minister to Paul. Paul's chained up. Epaphroditus is sent to him. Two things he had to do. He had to bring an offering. So Epaphroditus had to show up with a check. And then they said, you stay as long as you need to to minister to Paul's needs. Don't skip over that because that's pretty important. Think about that. That simple act of him journeying from Philippi to Rome, that was significant. That was a several-week journey for him to actually engage in. What does that show us about Epaphroditus? Three things, real quick. He would have been a man of character. Friends, think about this. When you ask yourself the question, what will they say about me? I hope they say that you were a man or woman of character. You say, how do we know he was a man of character? You have an entire church that asks themselves the question, who should we send to Paul? 
several-week journey. They're going to stay with him to minister to his needs, probably become one of Paul's closest companions. Who should we send? You're not going to send, you're not going to send a loser, are you? Let's find the person nobody likes and send him to Paul. Let's find the most annoying person in Philippi. We'll send that person to Paul. No, you're going to send your best because you want Paul to be ministered to well. So Epaphroditus, I wish his name was Bob. That'd be so much simpler. He had to be a man of character. Secondly, he had to be a man of integrity. Again, making a several-week journey over to Rome with money. He was bringing an offering to Paul, so Paul had resources in order to accomplish things. Again, you're not, who should we send with the sack of cash? Anybody in here have history as a bank robber? You'd be a good choice. No, you're going to send somebody with integrity and character to Paul so that you knew that whatever you were sending with them would ultimately make it to the destination and to the person. Thirdly, he had to be a man of sacrifice. Not only was he dropping off this check from the church in Philippi, but he had to stay. He got to stay and minister to Paul's needs. Again, we don't know how long Epaphroditus stayed. We don't know exactly what he did to minister to Paul. But all we know is he was leaving the comfort of his home to go live in a jail situation with a man who had a target on his back from the Romans and was likely to be killed. That takes a man of sacrifice to accomplish that and to willingly lay down his life to do that for Paul. So let's keep going with him. Paul goes on to describe him. Look again at verse 25. Paul says he's my brother, which indicates they shared faith in Jesus, obviously. He says he's my co-worker, which likely means that Epaphroditus would have engaged in teaching and discipling with Paul, the men, women. And we said uh, in chapter 1 that Paul was leading soldiers to faith in Jesus. Pretty incredible. And then lastly, he calls Epaphroditus a soldier, which means he was engaging in the spiritual battle with Paul. When the Romans were trying to shut Paul down, Paul used the opportunity to his advantage. He says, you may lock me up, but I'll disciple him in here and send him out there. Paul was not going to let the gospel be stopped. He was going to advance the mission. Look at verse 26. So he ultimately sends Epaphroditus home. Since he's been longing for all of you and he was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Paul says he was so sick that he almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. That actually means that Paul didn't want to be deeply depressed. He didn't want his emotions to overtake him because of how much he loved Epaphroditus. Again, we don't know the details here, but so sick he almost dies. He doesn't end up passing. But notice a small detail here. Paul does not say he wanted to go home because he was sick. Paul wasn't a third grader. I'm sorry, Epaphroditus was not a third grader in the nurse's office. Remember when you were in third grade, you'd get a stomach ache, and you're, I don't feel good, I just want to go home. We all did it. That was not Epaphroditus. Paul says it's not because he was sick that he wanted to go home. He wanted to go home because you heard he was sick. And he knew the emotional toll that that was taking on you. Why? Because they probably loved him a whole lot. They probably really cared for this guy a whole lot. And so instead of traveling home because he was ill... Paul says, no, 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 he's traveling home because of how much he cares for you. And he doesn't want you to be overwhelmed with emotion with how much you're aching and caring and concerned for him. Epaphroditus loved the church in Philippi to the point where he ached if they ached. Pause. There's something special right there. Don't miss that. I've been thinking about that this entire week and asking myself the question, do I love the other people in my church that much? 
that I ache when they ache. That's the difference between the word compassion and empathy. We've talked about that before. Compassion says I understand. Empathy says I understand and engage in the emotion with you. Epaphroditus, he, he ached that much because he knew that they were concerned for his welfare. Even, even when the trials and the weight and the sickness of my life may come down upon me, am I more concerned about my wants, needs, and desires or what it does to you to the point where I, I don't want you to be burdened with my stuff. I want to care for you well because I love you so much. I hope you reflect on that this week. Do we love other people in our church context that much? So what happens? Paul sends him home. Verses 28 through 30. Paul says, I'm eager to send him to you. Epaphroditus is actually the one who took this letter that Paul had written and delivered it back to this church. He's the actual one that took this scroll that Paul wrote and took it back to this church. He said, I want you to rejoice again when you see him so I may be less anxious. Paul was concerned for their well-being too. He says, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in high honor. Why? Because he came close to death for the work of Christ. He risked his life, making up what was lacking in your ministry to me. You see, the Philippians we see in this few verses, Philippians, they wanted to come to Rome, but it wasn't plausible. It wasn't, didn't make sense for them to do that. So instead, they sent Epaphroditus on their, on their behalf. And he was there to minister to Paul on, on, in regard to the entire church. This one man sent on behalf of this entire organization saying, Paul, we love you. And Epaphroditus was willing to sacrifice for us to show him that. They sent their best down to Paul. I love that story of Epaphroditus. So our original question was this, and we're done. When you're gone, what are they going to say about you? A hundred years from now, as people reflect back on your life, would they write that you were selfless? That you were willing to put the needs, wants, and desires of other people above your own 100% of the time because you wanted to love Jesus well by loving them? It's the great commandment. Would they say, like Paul says of Epaphroditus, that you're sacrificial? Where you were willing to lay aside maybe your will to be able to engage in what other people need you to do for them? It's another form of selflessness. What will they say about you? And I wrote this simple sentence down and I'll pray. Selfless and sacrificial. It's two words that we could all strive to live out a little bit more as we walk with Jesus this week. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you're good to us. Thank you, Lord, for our time in your word today. God, I pray that your word has encouraged your people, that it's drawn us closer to Jesus, that it's mobilized us with a greater fervency for mission this week. God, give us opportunity to take the gospel wherever we go. And Lord, I pray that you take these two words, selfless and sacrificial, that you implant them in the depths of our heart and cause us to care for other people so deeply. That, well, Lord, these would be the words that they used to describe us when we're long and gone because we lived them out well while we were here. We love you, Jesus. We pray now as we sing that our song is a sweet aroma and a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven today. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.